Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and if you caught the last episode, which was part one of a two-part series on the R56 Mini Cooper S, you know that I talked about the history of the Mini Cooper, I reviewed the specifications and performance of the R56 version of this car, which was sold in the U.S. from model years 2007 to 2013, and then I wrapped it up by telling you about common problems that can affect these cars, especially when they have higher mileage. And in part two, today's episode, I'll tell you how some of these potential problems actually manifested in my 2011 R56 Mini Cooper S, and I'll go over what I had to do to fix my Mini to get it back on the road. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. One day I'm out driving, and I'm looking at the rearview mirror, and I see smoke. I see, like, you know, blue smoke, oil burning, right? And I thought, well, that's not good. And I go to check my gauges. Oh, wait a minute. I don't have any gauges. Uh-oh. And then I go to check my screen. Does it say anything? Like, your car is failing. Take it to the local mini dealer. So none of that was happening. The car was running fine. But I thought, okay, well, I'm taking the next exit. I was on the freeway. I took the next exit, pulled into a bank parking lot, and opened the hood. And definitely there's oil leaking somewhere from the front of the car. And it's going on the exhaust. And it's making this kind of big smoky mess. Sort of embarrassing. But, you know, hey, I'll get over it. Okay, it turns out that the oil return or feed line, whichever one has that banjo bolt and banjo fitting, that had broken and kind of spewed oil all over the front of the car. It didn't go through enough oil to cause any damage or anything. And I didn't lose oil pressure, but it definitely sprayed, you know, the front of the motor kind of got all over everything, got up into the wiring harness a bit. Not a lot, but just enough to be annoying. Needed to be cleaned out. So I had the car towed to that same BMW repair shop and they tell me what was wrong. And I said, okay, tell you what, I'll pay you for your time for the diagnosis. I'm going to button it up because I've got some other work to do. I need to replace that valve cover gasket and some other stuff. And I thought, well, I'll just kind of dig into the car. So I get the car home, get it in the garage. I take the valve cover off. First thing I notice is one of the bolts holding the valve cover down is broken off. It's the one in the back, uh, right in the center. And, you know, somebody broke it at some point and then just kind of like stuck it in the hole. Okay, so now I've got to get that thing drilled and tapped, which was a pain because now I've got the car apart. It's not like I can drive it down to a machine shop. I had to pay a guy to come to my house and drill that out and put a helicoil in there and fix it. Anyway, so that was a nightmare. So I knew that I needed to get the oil feed line and return line. And there was a kit from a company called Detroit Tuned which was perfect for the car. It had like a braided stainless steel return line fitting that was much better than the factory fitting. So I, I picked that up. I also decided, you know, I'm in there. I might as well replace those gaskets. I know they're leaking a little bit on the oil filter housing and the oil cooler. So I ordered those. And while I was doing that, I went back out in the garage and had, again, I had the valve cover off and I'm looking down on the motor and I'm thinking, okay, maybe since I've got it apart, I'm going to check the tension of the timing chain. Because I know that even though the N18 doesn't have as many problems with the timing chain as the N14, and I got it apart, I might as well check. So I had one of these little devices that you put in where the tensioner goes to check the tension of the chain against a particular value that says it's good or bad. There's a range for it. So when I took the tensioner out, the tensioner came out all as one piece, but then I set it down on the counter and it just kind of went boink. 
it literally just disintegrated. The piston popped out, the spring popped out. I'm like, oh, well, that sucks. So now I have to get a new tensioner. Luckily, it didn't fall apart in the motor, which was good. And I also checked the tension. The chain was actually within specification. It had worn some, but it was still within spec, so I didn't have to replace it. However, as a part of my overall trying to fix things, I had that I had leaking on the bottom of the car, so I took the pan off as well. I mean, I'm really digging into the whole thing. I took the whole front of the car off, and I've got the motor all in pieces. And I took the oil pan off to fix that leak on the backside of the motor, which was related to the oil pump control solenoid wire leak that can wick up into your DME, your engine computer. Okay. So as I'm going in to fix that, I clean out the oil pan and I found a little piece of plastic in there. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, wait a minute, that looks like it's part of the timing chain guide. The timing chain, there's the two sprockets at the top that go to the cams, and then there's a sprocket at the bottom for the crankshaft. Then there's guides on either side that push the chain together to keep the tension on the chain. Well, there was a little piece of the chain guide in the pan. And I'm like, oh, God. Okay, so I get a flashlight. I'm looking down in there. I can't see where this piece came off of. And I can't tell if any other pieces have come off the chain guide. So now I'm in a situation where I guess I'm going to have to replace the timing chain because I don't know how much damage there was. Turns out that the guide really wasn't damaged much. It was in a place where it kind of didn't matter. I probably could have buttoned it back up and been okay, but I'm not that guy. So I went ahead and ordered a chain. It was kind of the beginning of the pandemic at that point and parts were really cheap. So I got a really good deal on a timing chain kit. But now I'm doing a timing chain. Oh, God, I didn't want to do that, but then I was stuck doing it. So, okay. And the timing chain on this car is really funky. I've done timing belts. I've done a couple on Miatas. I've done a timing chain on an old Datsun 510 I used to own. Uh, I've done some stuff like this, so I'm not uncomfortable doing it. But this at the bottom where the sprocket is on the crankshaft, it's not held in place with a pin or anything. There's nothing that holds it in the correct position other than the tension of the bolt. So you have to line up everything perfectly before you tighten anything down and you have to tighten it to the exact specification or the whole thing can come apart and boom, you're screwed. So this just became this thing that kept growing and growing and growing. Well, finally, over time, I get the gaskets fixed in the front. I get the oil return feed line fixed for the turbocharger. I fixed the leak from the oil control solenoid. I decided since I had the car part and I actually had to pull the intake manifold, I decided, okay, well, I'm in there. I went ahead and did that walnut shell cleaning on the intake valves. So I got that all cleaned up. Everything's all finally finished. I put it all back together. <laughs> the car runs. It runs great. The only problem is, oh, wait a minute. Now the headlights are stuck on. I have headlights. I can't turn them on or off. There's no turn signals. The radio didn't work. None of the electronics worked. All it was was the headlights were on. I'm like, what is this? What devil in the system is this? I don't know. So I was just kind of tired of it, and I threw up my hands, and I called the shop and took it in. They diagnosed it as this body module that had failed. And they said, yeah, you know, these fail over time. Um, this one actually is guaranteed for 10 years and 120,000 miles. Of course, mine was just four months beyond 10 years, and 
121,000 miles or something. Anyway, BMW wouldn't cover it. So needless to say, when I filled out my next Consumer Reports survey, I flamed the 2011 Mini Cooper S. So if you look on Consumer Reports and you see that, it was me. Or at least maybe it was me. Anyway, um, yes, I was pissed. I had them fix that. On the way home, (laughs) driving back, I get about a little over halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way home, and I get the screen that says, oh, problem with your car, take it to the local BMW dealer. I'm like, oh, God, what, what new problem is this now? So I pull over, and I'm trying to figure it out. And, of course, again, no gauges, so you can't look at anything. I look under the car, and I see coolant dripping. I'm like, coolant dripping. Great. What is that? I called the shop, and they said, look, check to see how much coolant's in the car. You should be able to just drive it home and then check it there. So I did. I got it home, and I discovered that, oh, it was either the thermostat was leaking or that crossover tube in the back was leaking. If I'd known that was an issue before I took the motor apart and then put it back together, I would have fixed it while I was in there. But I didn't, so I didn't fix it. Well, now I'm ordering a thermostat and a crossover tube. So, you know, I'm out of a couple hundred bucks more. (laughs) I finally get the thing. I install it. And again, you know, I have to take the whole thing apart to get to all that stuff. So I get that back on. I get the thermostat functioning and uh, everything's working again just fine. But then I'm in the garage. It's running. And the engine stops. It won't idle. It could kind of start a little bit, but it wouldn't really start. And then I'm thinking, okay, now what, right? Uh, So I hook up the scanner and I discover that, oh, your high-pressure fuel pump is bad. I'm like, what? No, it can't be. So I went down to the local mini dealer and had them look up whether or not this car had ever had a high-pressure fuel pump. Turns out that at 57,000 miles, the high-pressure fuel pump, the original, was replaced. Okay, so now I'm at... I think the mileage was right right around 120. So now I've gone like 63,000 miles more, and it's failed again. So here I am buying a new one, a $900 part. I was able to put it on myself. It's like four bolts, and you have to take a couple of fuel lines off. It's not that complicated. So, okay, got that on. Found out that, oh, not only was it the high-pressure fuel pump, but the low-pressure pump was bad. I don't know if maybe the low-pressure pump went bad because it was trying to feed the high-pressure pump. I don't know, but it failed too. So that had to be replaced. That's the in-tank fuel pump. So once that was replaced, then everything was fine. The car ran great. Everything was good. But I replaced just about everything that typically fails on these cars. So I kept driving around for a while. Um, I had some friends who were like, he did all this work, man. Why don't you just keep the car? And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to sell it. I'm just tired of working on it. If I get another trouble code, I'm going to I'm gonna lose it. So I put it up for sale. And I had a woman who was uh, interested in buying the car. She took it out for a long test drive. Everything was great. I opened the hood and I was showing her some stuff. And I noticed on the valve cover, there's two sensors that plug into the valve cover. They're like a cam timing sensor. Anyway, it's for monitoring your cam timing. So I'd noticed that there was a little bit of oil coming out of one of those, and I thought, it probably just needs a new O-ring. So I went and got the O-rings and decided to replace that. In the meantime, she decided to buy the car, and we were going to meet at the bank the next day and exchange cash and do all that stuff. Since I had taken those sensors out of the car and put them back in, then all of a sudden I got a trouble code. And I'm like, oh, God. You know, after all this time, I thought, I can't sell this person the car with a trouble code. 
And I called the shop and they said, you know what? You took that thing out. It's probably nothing. Just erase the code and sell the car. I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, so I call her up and I say, hey, there's a light on check engine light. I can't sell you the car like this. It just makes me uncomfortable. I need a, a day or two to check it out and make sure it's okay. If you don't mind waiting, great. She called me back that afternoon and said, you know, I'm going to do something else. So boom, missed a buyer. And it was a totally unforced error on my part. If I hadn't replaced those two O-rings, <laughs> none of this would have happened. Uh, you know, no good deed shall go unpunished. Two weeks later, almost to the day, it was a Sunday night. I get a phone call from a guy on the other side of the state that I live in. He's like three hours away. Hey, I'm really interested in your car. I want to come look at it tomorrow, Monday. I'm like, okay. He goes, yeah, I'm driving over. It's going to take me like three hours. I'm like, if you decide to buy it, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to tow it home on a dolly. So he came over. We went for a long drive. He drove it probably an hour up and down through the gears, you know, getting on it, braking hard, turning hard, the whole thing. I said, you know, dude, drive the crap out of it because you need to feel comfortable in your purchase. I said, I'm confident the car is in great shape. I told him all the stuff that I'd done to it. I had all the receipts and everything. And he was he was impressed by that. He's like, yeah, most people don't keep this stuff. It's like, yeah, well, I do. Anyway, got done. He loved the car. He went and got a dolly, came back, gave me the cash, and that was it. Goodbye. And after that, I was like... I really liked that car. It was really fun to drive. I wanted to keep it. So it was a bit of a mixed bag for me, but I guess because I'd had so many issues that I had to deal with, I was just done. I was ready for a different experience. So that's my R56 Mini Cooper S experience. So what should you look for when you're looking for one of these? Because even after all the things I've been through, I still wouldn't say to you, don't get one. And it's funny because I think, what are you, crazy? No, I really can't say don't get one because I literally had the whole laundry list of all the things that could go wrong, go wrong right on me. Why didn't they go wrong on somebody else? I don't know. Maybe because I was trying to get a good deal. Oh, this is going to be a really cheap high mileage mini. I'm going to be fine. Mm, hubris. It's a terrible thing. The gods of used cars <laughs> struck me with lightning. You shall pay for this, you moron. Well, okay, I did. Anyway, I can't tell you not to get one because they are so much fun to drive and so enjoyable that I do think you should go for it, but you decide. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about what you should look for in one of these cars. So when it comes to an R56 Mini Cooper S and what to look for, you want to start with the basics. You want to go with minimal owners. A one-owner car is the best. A two-owner car, not bad. You also want to get a car that has had impeccable maintenance. Oil changes are really important on these cars. They're turbocharged, so oil is the lifeblood of that engine. And because a lot of people don't always check their oil on a regular basis, and it's actually kind of hard to check on the Mini Cooper, not in terms of the dipstick putting it down into the engine, but actually reading the stick, you have to get pretty good at looking at that. And I, I found myself having to check it like two or three times every time I checked it just to make sure that the reading I was getting was accurate. So you want to make sure that's had regular oil changes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you also want to make sure that a lot of these things that I just told you, maybe they've already been replaced. Okay. And you can also contact the dealer and give them the VIN number and they should be able to tell you whether or not some of that work's been done before. For example, I found out that my car had had a high-pressure fuel pump replaced at 57,000 miles. So knowing that was good information for me. It's like, okay, I'm probably due for another one. You might know if there'd been any sort of major issue with the car. 
Certainly the N14 cars that had issues with timing chains, they might have been replaced under warranty. So you'd want to know that before you bought one. You want to get a car that checks out on a Carfax. I always use Carfax. It's not perfect, but it's not a bad way to really confirm how many owners there's been, uh, what kind of accidents, at least accidents that were reported. And most of them are, so that's a good thing. There could be some minor damage that happened to the car that was fixed sort of off the books. But you should be able to tell that, or it should come up in a pre-purchase inspection, which I also recommend for these cars. Uh, what else? As you visually look over the car, you want to make sure that the panel gaps are all even. You want to make sure the doors close properly, the rear hatch closes. You also want to check all of the VIN tags on the car. They're going to be on major body parts. So they're going to be on like front fenders. They're going to be on the front hood. They're going to be on the rear hatchback. They're going to be on the rear quarter panel. They're going to be on the bottom of the doors. And these are little tags that are about oh, two and a half inches long. They're typically kind of a green and white color, kind of a blue and white color, and they have the VIN number of the car stamped on them. So if any of those parts are ever replaced, like if you had to cut out a quarter panel, that VIN number is going to come off of there, and the one that goes back on is going to be different than the VIN number of the car, and you would know that that had been cut off and replaced. So it's good to check those. You want to do the standard things too, like you want to check the brake pads and the rotor condition to make sure the brakes are okay. Get yourself a tire depth gauge. You can see how much tread is actually left. Eyeballing tread is different than actually checking with a depth gauge. And a depth gauge is like $5 at the local auto parts store. I've got a couple of them. I take them with me whenever I go, and it's a good thing to check. You also want to look around the interior, make sure there's no rips or tears or weird stuff. A car this young, or this old, if you will, shouldn't have really any damage inside. If it has damage, it might be due to something like a dog or just a stupid owner. And if they allowed the interior of the car to get damaged, I mean, really, it, it should never happen. So I just wouldn't buy that car. Move on, look for another one. Other things you want to do when you're looking at a car, take it out for a long, long test drive. Drive it for an hour. Drive it in all kinds of conditions that you would be driving in. So make sure you take it out on the freeway. Get it up to 80 miles an hour. See if, if the front end shakes a little bit or if one of the tires is out of balance. You want to know that stuff before you buy it. You don't want to just drive around on city streets 25 miles an hour because that doesn't tell you a lot about the car. I mean, that's one way to drive it, but definitely get it out on a freeway. Take it out on a you know country road going 50 miles an hour. Turn the radio off. Check that when the car is stopped. But when you're driving, turn everything off so you can hear the sounds of the car. You want to check how the fan works, whether or not the air conditioning works. That's a big one. Those things can be very expensive if you have to replace a compressor or condenser or something like that. You don't want to be chasing down an air conditioning issue. And any moron who tells you, oh, it just needs to have the AC recharged is an idiot because if it was just that, then they would fix it and it wouldn't be an issue, right? Right. Okay, what else? These cars have tire pressure monitoring system. My car, the TPMS sensors in the wheels had gone bad. They basically, you know, the battery doesn't last forever. It's this little tiny thing that's part of your valve stem inside the wheel. And it lives in a very harsh environment. It's spinning around and around and around. It's got G-forces on it. It's got temperature changes. It's got all kinds of stuff going on. So after 10 years, guess what? Eh, they don't work anymore. 
So those may be bad. And then that's kind of a question for you. Do you want to spend money to you know replace that? Do you want to spend money on possibly the module that runs that whole system? I mean, you could end up spending $1,000 on the TPMS sensors. If it doesn't really matter to you, then don't worry about it. But if it does, that's probably a $500 to $1,000 fix if you take it to the BMW dealer. So consider that. Um, what else? Sometimes I'll have people like drive behind me while I'm driving a car and then I'll accelerate hard and then back off for like two seconds and then accelerate again just to see if any like smoke or weird stuff comes out the exhaust. That can indicate a problem sometimes, not always, but sometimes. So on a higher mileage car, you might want to do that. And really, you should be getting a pre-purchase inspection. Go ahead and pay a shop 150 200 bucks to check out a car. But before you do all that stuff, look it over yourself to make sure that you even want the car in the first place. If it's kind of like, well, I'm not really sure, well, then don't pay $200 to a shop to check it out. Why would you do that, right? Or if you look at the Carfax and it says it's been in two accidents, forget it. Walk away. Get a different car. Don't be stuck with somebody else's problem, right? And if it's got a branded title or a rebuilt title, I suggest you walk away. Now, there are times when you could get something like that and it might be okay if you knew the car and you knew what happened to it, but most of the time you don't. And personally, my mantra is avoid it. You're not buying a car where there's only there's only 20 of them ever made. Okay, in that particular case, a car with a rebuilt title would be fine. Look at the McLaren F1 owned by Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson. He wrecked that car twice, and I think he sold it for $12 million <laughs> yeah, because he didn't make very many, just a handful. It's like one of the greatest cars ever made. Okay, well, you're not Mr. Bean, and the car you're looking at is just a Mini Cooper S, so rebuild title, move on. Oh, what else to look for? Get an N18 motor. Get the newest car you can find. Look for a 2011, 2012, 2013, and I would probably just go for the last two years, 2012, 2013. There's enough issues with the N14 that it's just smart to avoid it. Again, if you know the car, great, go for it. But if you don't, why even trouble yourself? Just do your search 2011 to 2013, Mini Cooper S. You can search that way. You can go to autotempest.com and you can put those parameters in. Don't overfill the parameters. Don't put in too many filters. I would just put in 2011 through 2013, Mini Cooper S, and that's it see what pops up and search nationwide. See what the prices are. See what people are buying and selling them for. Call a few people, talk to them about the car, right? But if you put too many filters on, you're going to filter out some cars that you might want. I don't even filter things like manual versus automatic, even if I'm looking for a manual transmission car, because not everybody fills that out correctly. So just, you know, be careful with that. Another thing I would look for is low mileage. It'd be great if you could find one with 50,000 miles. That's going to be tough, but maybe 50 to 75,000 miles. Before all those problem things that I mentioned that I experienced, a lot of that stuff will not have happened yet. You know, some of it may not happen, but you're going to be way before a lot of those issues. Remember, the car that I had, when it had all these problems, had 120,000 miles. So if you've got a car that, say, has 60,000 miles, that's that's halfway there. And you've got a lot of driving and time to enjoy the car before you have those issues. You know, maybe you drive it a year and sell it. But definitely go for low mileage. So there you go. That's what you should look for when you're out looking for these Mini Cooper S. 
Okay, so pricing. What can you expect to pay? You know, $5,000, $4,500 in my case. It's not going to happen. If you find a Mini Cooper S R56 for $5,000, my advice, run away. Do not buy it. You will not be happy. <laughs> it's just, it's going to have problems. There's an issue if it's that low. Trust me, I know. Um, $10,000. Yeah, you can find one for ten, And will it be great? Maybe. You know, it's kind of a mixed bag at that price, you know, eight to 10000 I think those are going to be, you know, eight to 11000 maybe. Those kind of cars might be really, really good. You could find one that's sort of underpriced. But I would recommend getting the best car you can for a decent amount of money. And I think that's really going to be more like in the twelve dollars to $15,000 range, maybe twelve dollars to fourteen. dollars And I think once you get up around fifteen, you're kind of getting to the top of what I think you should be paying. And that's just my personal opinion. But let me tell you about a car that I looked up recently, early April 2022. It's a 2013 Mini Cooper S Turbo, clean, six-speed manual transmission, $11,990. Where do people get these prices from? Just call it what it is. It's 12 grand, ding dong. Okay, but this is a private party. This is a kind of the cream colored white with a black hard top. It's got the black wheels. They're 16 inch wheels. This car has 72,000 miles, $12,000 asking price. Not sure what you could actually get it for, but it's probably a relatively desirable car for somebody who was looking for a Mini Cooper. It doesn't have all the features that I might want. I can tell just by looking at it that it's got the halogen headlights. It doesn't have the high-intensity discharge headlights. Those are brighter. It's just a better headlight in terms of light output. This isn't a deal breaker for me. I would definitely consider this car if I was looking for one of these. It is a manual, too. I think the next time I get one, I'd get a manual. And this is a two-owner car. They had the Carfax or a picture of it, and you could see that it had two owners been no accidents. There's been no issues. The car's really nice. So I would definitely check this out. If you're not happy with the price, make an offer. See what happens. Anyway, spend extra. Get a better car with less miles, no accidents, well-maintained, one or two owners. You're going to be happy in the long run. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Better Than New and taking this kind of in-depth look at the R56 Mini Cooper S. In spite of the problems I had with mine, I mean, I do regret not having it anymore. I enjoyed the car, and I think with all the work I did to it, I probably should have just driven it for a year or two, but, you know, whatever. I got rid of it. So don't make the mistakes I made. Again, buy something, one owner, low miles, two owner, low miles. Spend a little bit more, get a lot more, and you'll be happy. Well, there you have it. That's it for this week. Until next week, I'm Gary Crenshaw. This is Better Than New. And I'm really glad you came along for the ride.